Hey there, my name is Dan, and welcome to Radio Free Bay Ridge, your hyperlocal progressive political podcast focusing on South Brooklyn and Bay Ridge. We also got in the studio today... Eric Schell, obviously. Obviously. Um, I don't think everyone can see you, Eric, but... They sense my presence, Dan. Happy Earth Day weekend, everyone. Ooh, to Earth. <laughs> This last weekend was really beautiful in Bay Ridge. It actually cracked the 60s. It sure did. And everybody was out doing great events. We had social bike rides. We had screenings at local churches for food security issues. Going out and enjoying the local botanical garden. The parks were packed. I don't know. Did you go get groceries on Earth Day, Eric? I did not because I'm going on vacation and therefore trying to buy no groceries so they don't spoil in the fridge. If you did happen to walk by your local grocery store on Earth Day, you might have also seen Fight Back Bay Ridge, one of the local activist groups in the neighborhood, handing out free 100% recyclable, reusable tote bags that had a uh, reduce the waste message on them and a hashtag. Yeah, uh, one of our more popular hashtags, hashtag not so golden. Yep, that was a direct reference to Senator Marty Golden and his attack on plastic bag taxes, which have been quite successful in other states at reducing overall waste. What is it, like 20% of coastal waste are just plastic bags, a huge tonnage. Most recycling places won't even take regular plastic bags because they're so uneconomical to recycle. So, hey, you want to complain about local progressives just whining about an issue? They actually went out and combined a political message with an actual solution for the exact issue that they were talking about. Who'd have thought? That's weird. They're actually <laughs> actually doing constructive <laughs> things in addition to awareness and protest. Go for it. Can't argue with progress met with ideals, Dan. Also, we'll just cover a little bit of extra news. Eric, I know you've been chomping at the bit to talk about this. This actually Mm -hmm. relates to one of our previous episodes about school overcrowding. Um, If anyone wants to listen to that, feel free. It's right down there. What's the name of the episode? A School of Our Own. A A School school of of Our Own. A School of Our Own. So what was this recent little kerfluffle that happened? Kerfluffle. Well, Dan, for those in the Bay Ridge Twitterverse who are following various local polls as well as obviously, the local activists who make up and dominate Bay Ridge Twitter. (laughs) We had a former city council candidate, uh, John Quaglione, tweeting (laughs) about the state of pre-K, which is important. De Blasio has been working very hard. It will be undoubtedly a part of his legacy, if you want to call it what mayors Yeah, you can say what you want about de Blasio, but one of his most popular reforms is universal pre-K. I mean, we can all get behind educating more young kids. Like, how important is that as our senior education correspondent? Dan, it is one of the most impactful things you can do to someone's education. Early childhood education is massively impactful years down the road. It affects high school graduation. It affects college attendance, college graduation future salary it affects like it is stacks on stacks of policy brilliance to have as much and as easy access to universal pre-k as possible you are gesticulating wildly also you wildly are... in the studio so is it worth the money to actually set this kind of thing up because it seems like that was quaglione's concern is that they were spending money for pre-k seats that are theoretically, according to him, going unused. Yeah, maybe. I read the tweet as, so for those who haven't read the tweet, he is bemoaning the fact that there are unfilled pre-K seats. And it's not because there was difficulty getting the seats. It's not because people had a hard time applying. It's because they existed and there are more than we need. That seems like a good state of affairs, right? Dan, it very much is. I'm still gesticulating wildly in the studio and pulling out what little hair I have left. (laughs) We talked in the education episode about the dangers of overcrowding, how it puts too much strain on teachers, a lot of strain on administration, on budgets, on busing, on road conditions in general. Overcrowding piles up issues. And when you have too many seats, teachers have more time to spend with individual kids and they can expect to receive the services that they're offered. And there are fewer people on the roads driving their kids to pre-K. And it is... 
it seems I like just, uh, it, I can't I can't I I can't <laughs> imagine why a local politician would be upset that everyone who wants universal pre-K is getting it. It doesn't make sense to me. One thing I will say is that education and specifically class sizes shouldn't be something that you aim for 100% utilization of. This is one of those things where you want 60, 70, 80. I don't know what that percent would be of filling a class, but you want to have room for transfer kids to come into class, new kids to come in who've moved from other states. You want those classes to be flexible and be able to shuffle kids around because that makes the administrator's job easier. It makes kids' lives easier. Heck, it's one of the few moments where they're building a fresh new system with enough seats. Right now, our existing elementary and high school systems were not built that way, and we didn't keep up to pace, and now at least we don't have to worry about keeping up with pre-K too, it seems. We are in one of the most overcrowded districts. We've talked about this and we have a segment of our education population that is not overcrowded. That is an amazing thing. Kids will transfer out. They'll get kicked out of a charter school and they have to find somewhere to go. Their parents will be hit with hardship and suddenly a stay-at-home dad can't stay at home anymore so they have to get their kids into pre-k that extra seat is going to go a long way for that family economically and it's being pooped upon to say nothing of the fact (laughs) that quaglione when one of the pre-k's near where i live was being constructed Mm. when that was happening he tweeted out that all this construction in bay ridge oh it's so intrusive to our parking he was standing in front of a pre-k when he said it he was opposed to this way before we had too many seats i get sometimes that people are upset about fiscal mismanagement or corruption or all of these things these are things that Hey, liberals are very concerned about, too, by the way. Oh, yeah. I am no fan of Cuomo right now. I mean, the Prococo <laughs> trials and good God, mm-hmm. we want everybody to have a fair shot in this system and we want everything to be spent effectively. And there are some things where I am willing to say I'm willing to spend more for pre-K seats. That is a great use of my tax dollars. There are elements in the pre-K system, like classrooms in really awkward spaces. I know there is an extremely expensive pre-K off of 86th Street near the municipal garage that costs like a ridiculous amount to build. But these are worthwhile. Do you really want to put a price tag on a kid's education that way? For all the millennials out there who are not going to be able to ever save for retirement, you want a solid retirement savings plan? Invest in pre-K because those kids grow up. And if all of them are making more money, if all of them are more successful, that is tax dollars pumped into every vital service you're going to need when you're retired. That is an amazing point. By all means, I'm seeing more and more kids opening up small businesses in this neighborhood. It's great. This is exactly what we need to keep Bay Ridge at the level it's at in perpetuity is encouraging this constant cycling. And I just don't have any time for the fear mongering about change. Change helps perpetuate the good things we have. Uh, It's not even change. There was universal pre-K when career outcomes didn't require education. It was (laughs) called your family. This is just us keeping up. Universal pre-K is a keeping up standard. It is not a progressive standard. It is we now need this education. We see that it helps. It is the best return on investment economically that we have currently. And we're there. Like We now have it. Thank God. (laughs) (laughs) What we need to be talking about now is the fact that we have universal pre-K and we are still in the most overcrowded district because eventually those kids are graduating. And they're going to start flooding the already overcrowded system. So we need to do right by them and prep for that now. Absolutely. Or it will be going up the cliff of success and just catapulting right off the end. And speaking of um, taking the time, we spent way too long on our little education spiel. I've I think been I'm waiting looking, weeks for this. <laughs> I'm looking at my little piece of paper that we have when we record um, of the things we have to hit. And that was, that said about two minutes there. And I think we've gone on for about 10. Anyway, so let's get through some of the rest of the news so we can get on with the main meat of today's episode. One of the big things that is happening nationally in the neighborhood is Donald Trump Jr. and Sebastian Gorka are about to stand in the shadow of the Verrazano Bridge. Indeed. The Brooklyn GOP has invited both to speak at a fundraiser at the Diker Heights Golf Course. Donald Trump Jr. needs no introduction. Sebastian Gorka 
safe to say a neo-Nazi? Yeah, a few neo-Nazi groups have just kind of raised their hands in the past and said, yep, he's ours. I mean, I don't know what else you want. He was the Breitbart's national security editor. He was briefly on the Trump campaign, but was Mm -hmm. thrown off for being crazy very early on. When you're thrown off of that train for being a bit crazy, you know how bad it really is. The guy was assisting the now head of Hungary doing these really radical right-wing street protests that resulted in violence with anti-Semitic and neo-Nazi groups. Mm -hmm. John McCain, Senator John McCain, Republican, said that Sebastian Gorka's former boss was a neo-Nazi dictator. That is not a paraphrasing. That is a direct quote. And And yet... They're coming to Bay Ridge. Not only are they coming to Bay Ridge, Marty Golden and John Quaglione and multiple Republicans from the district are retweeting the crap out of that invitation. And there is a reason that they're retweeting it. You might be able to say that, oh, the Brooklyn Republican Party has invited these people. Let me clarify. The Brooklyn Republican Party is run by Marty Golden. I'd like to remind everyone that in 2016, Craig Eaton, the former head of the Brooklyn GOP, One of the last elements of the conservative movement in Brooklyn that wasn't directly controlled by Marty Golden was finally ousted, and Marty Golden put in his own replacement. The Brooklyn Republican Party went through a major schism, and now it pretty much marches to Marty Golden's orders. Actually, weirdly enough, marches to the conservative party's orders. The GOP has been subsumed into the conservative party. For example, Jerry Kasar, Marty Golden's chief of staff, is the head of the state conservative party, not Republican Party. The idea that this is the Brooklyn GOP sickens me. This is not the Brooklyn GOP. This is not the GOP that I grew up knowing in this neighborhood. Marty Golden has turned it into something genuinely perverse. And we've spoken to conservatives on this podcast before. I have them in my day-to-day life. None of them would be okay with something like this. And I'm just sad for the state of the Brooklyn Republican Party. If this is what they think that they have to stoop to, to defend their ideals, because these are not their ideals. I know them, and I'm continually shocked when they fail to properly explain them to people and instead jump on this kind of hateful shit. Now I'm gesticulating. Dan and I have switched places, (laughs) and now I am the calm in the studio, and Dan is... Without words, pulling hair, we as a community have successfully moved an NRA fundraiser multiple times to multiple institutions. The GOP has failed to notice that Bayridge shows up. So I guess it's just time to show them one more time. It's going to drag a good number of people outside this neighborhood over to it, both to support and to protest this event. Don't let just tons of people from out of this community come in and start pushing us around. We're also here. We should be taking a lead in how this reaction happens. Absolutely. One final thing is we should be talking about and leading into what our main point of the episode is today. Yes. Which is the NY11 race. New York 11, the Staten Island and part of South Brooklyn seat that is currently occupied by Dan Donovan. The Don himself. First and foremost, we sat down with all eight candidates and meticulously gave them a platform for which to tell us what was most important about their campaigns. It was a long process, more podcasting than I've ever done in my life, and more editing (laughs) editing than I think Dan has ever or will ever want to do again. (laughs) But alas. Alas, that was the field we had. It is now down to six. Petitioning has just wrapped up for the Democratic candidates. Mm -hmm. There has been a recent development in that petitioning that seems to have occurred over the last couple of days, which is that some of those petitions have been challenged. Indeed. Do we know exactly who challenged? We don't. There is no confirmation any which way of who might have challenged. We know the people who were challenged. Paul Sperling, Radhakrishna Mohan. Uh, DeVito. And uh, Zach Emig. Yes, indeed. So those four, the remainders would be Max Rose and Omar Vaid, who were not challenged at all. Yeah. And yeah. Then at a recent candidate forum, the question was asked, and all candidates staunchly denied the challenge except for Omar Vaid. Yeah, we had Zach Emig going through and finding exactly who challenged those petitions. He called the person up, asked, and the person said that they volunteered for Omar Vaid. 
We would like to say that isn't necessarily confirmation without Omar specifically saying he did. Anyone can waltz in and challenge any number of petitions or say that they volunteered. We can say it's a valid assumption at this point. Right. And we should also be careful to say petition challenges do exist for a reason. They exist for contentious races in which an underdog perhaps is particularly defensive about their position. They want to make sure it's run fair. They want to make sure it's run well. As much as we want primaries to be about issue-based politics, and we'll get into that in a few moments with the roundtable, it is a reality that the candidates were expecting some kind of a challenge. For sure. There would be no reason for them to overpetition, which is kind of what they did this cycle. They all got way more than the number they needed. And that's specifically to protect against things like this. I think they were all hoping that by getting this number... No one would actually challenge because it is a foolhardy errand to attempt to discredit that number of excess petitions. It happened anyway. I hope that all the candidates have the backing and financial stability to go through and validate those petitions. When you first submit, you do not need to validate. It is assumed to be valid unless someone challenges. Someone has. So best of luck to all the candidates. We know them all personally at this point. Yeah, and I think I speak for both them and us when I say we're really just ready to get this primary going. Let's start seeing whose issues really connected with people. Right. And speaking of that, having spoken and given a platform to all of the candidates, even the ones that have since dropped out of the race, some issues weren't touched upon. Absolutely. Issues of foreign policy, which are massive issues that relate to women in particular. Issues Issues that relate to infrastructure, transit. Mm -hmm. They were touched on, but not necessarily to the level that some people would like to hear. Yeah, I in particular would always need more education information, which was fairly lacking. Staten Island seat, not much of a Brooklyn in the mix there. Yep. Staten Island was the focus, which it is the largest part of the district. But hey, we're here too, guys. And we're not an insignificant part of it. We actually constitute a hefty chunk, 30, 35% of the population of the district. Yeah, you look at landmass, Staten Island's gigantic, but we are crammed in like sardines. We have a lot of people down here. Indeed. After we had given such a platform, we wanted to then open it up to the very active and politically plugged in people of the community like our listeners are. So we have more than we have ever had in the studio. So I will be kind of backing off a little bit. And Eric, please, you can take this away as the independent of the (laughs) podcast, not associated and not able to vote in this coming primary. I feel like you would be the best navigator through these issues today. Well, Dan, I'm a humble man, but I would have I would have to agree with you on that one. All right, so let's get this roundtable started. Ladies and gentlemen, here we are at Radio Free Bay Ridge headquarters recording what is, up to this point, our largest group in the studio that we've ever had, in fact. And we're very excited to get started. This is the New York 11 wrap-up episode. We're extremely excited. After eight long, arduous interviews involving all of the Radio Free cast, mostly Dan, uh... (laughs) We are finally at the end, and we're ready to talk about the candidates. Eight candidates have turned into six, but we're ready to talk about all of them anyway. Let's get started with introductions. We will start on my left and go around clockwise. Why don't you go ahead and introduce yourself just real quick, what your name is, what you do. Hi, my name is Brian Hedden, and I'm the chairperson of the local chapter of Transportation Alternatives in Southwest Brooklyn. My name's Alex Pelletieri. I'm a local high school student. I'm also involved with Bay Ridge for Social Justice, Fight Back Bay Ridge, and the DSA, the Democratic Socialist of America. My name is Mallory McMahon. I am a college professor at Lehman College, CUNY, and I'm one of the co-founding members of Fight Back Bay Ridge. Hi, I'm Rachel Posner. I'm one of the core leadership team members of the South Brooklyn Progressive Resistance. I'm also a public high school teacher in New York City, have been for 15 years. And I also want to introduce my five-year-old who's also here. She's running around the studio as we speak. It is a powerhouse of progressives in this room right now, and we are stoked to get started. So I thought maybe we could talk about the two people who dropped out first. We, again, started with eight Democrats in this race, a massive ticket uh, if it were to have gone to the end. Now we are down to six. We have lost Boyd Melson, who 
made me feel inadequate in his interview. Uh, he's, he's done. He's done almost anything any person human can do, and then he's done more in order to lead the race. And then Desilis, who was an extremely strong candidate and had some ideas that resonated with me, and I kind of wanted to give us the chance to see what they brought to the race, even though they're no longer in it. I can't speak for Boyd Melson. He dropped out so quickly that it's a little hard to say who or what he would have become as a candidate. But obviously, the work that he's gone to do is valuable and important and certainly something we should all commend him for. I guess for those who don't know, was he not active duty and then he re-enlisted to be deployed so that somebody else would not have to go, right? So that they wouldn't exactly. be separated from their family. So hopefully we'll see him again. You know, when he returns, hopefully he'll be back joining the political circles again. As far as Mike DeSillis went, I think it's a real loss that he had to leave the race. I think that he brought a lot of expertise as a police officer, as an EMT, a teacher. You know, he taught in a District 75 school with kids who are severely autistic. He's got a wealth of information and experience to bring to the race. And I think that the conversations shifted because he was a part of it. I'm sorry to see him go. I'm not entirely sorry to see the field shrink just from the standpoint that, <laughs> right. from the standpoint that in a winner-take-all race, when you have eight people or honestly, even when you have six people to choose from, there's a lot of different factors that you might start thinking about. Person A, this person supports my ideals, but I don't think that they have a lot of popular support. So now you might start thinking about compromise, trying to guess who has enough support to win a primary without necessarily compromising your principles too much. If we had a system that allowed runoffs in primaries or some sort of preferential voting, it might be more helpful to have six candidates, eight candidates in a race. But I think with winner take all, it's helpful to have fewer candidates in the race, not necessarily just one or two, but fewer than eight. Yeah, yeah, I agree with that. Yeah. I mean, as much as I respect both of them, I think it's already very tough for people to figure out what direction to put their energies in. Yeah, absolutely. So we have in this race a lot of Staten Islanders. And as we all know, New York 11 is Staten Island and that nice little shoehorn into South Brooklyn. We have a candidate coming out and saying this is Staten Island seat. Everyone knows it. And we were talking downstairs uh, before the show that that's kind of not how this is going to work. Alex, you're shaking your head. Did you want to comment on this a little bit? Yeah, no, for sure. I think that with six candidates in the race, Brooklyn's going to come into play. Whoever wins is going to win with a definitely not a majority and a relatively low percent. And I think that there's a very active progressive base in Brooklyn. We're all here. And I'm interested to see which candidate is going to be able to play to that base and get the more progressive vote, which I think is going to be crucial to win. Brian, I think you had a follow-up with what Alex was saying. There's a certain conventional wisdom about this being a Staten Island seat and I think part of it is based on a bad interpretation of the way races have gone in the past. So you look at some races where you've had a Brooklyn candidate versus a Staten Island candidate. Stephen Harrison ran for Congress on this ballot once. There was a race between Dominic Recchia and uh, Michael Grimm. And of course, the special election that came down between Vincent Gentile and Dan Donovan. And because the Staten Island candidate has won in each of those cases, I think there's a tendency to say, well, it's because there was a Brooklyn candidate, they had no chance of winning. And I think part of it has to do with the fact that the Democratic candidate, who's always been the Brooklyn candidate in these cases, have been spending a lot of time focusing on what they deem to be winnable, moderate, centrist voters in the South Shore, so that they're losing the South Shore by 35 points or 40 points instead of you know, the usual 50 points. And they're not spending a lot of time focusing on progressive policies that would win over new voters in northern Staten Island or areas in Brooklyn, distressed economic communities that would benefit from progressive policies. Staten Islanders feel left out of this city. The reason that this is so often viewed as a Staten Island seat is because these are the places where they can feel their vote matters. So I understand that frustration that might lead someone to say, well, if you're from the other part of the district, you don't understand my issues as a Staten Islander. If Staten Island and Bay Ridge were connected better without the reliance on a car, this district would feel more unified. Most Staten Islanders who are not driving to work seem to be taking either the ferry or they're taking buses to Bay Ridge to get on the R train at 86th Street. You know, when we do outreach events that want to reach the district in Bay Ridge, we often 
plant ourselves with flyers at that train station because we know so many people from Staten Island first have to get to Bay Ridge on a bus and then take the same horrible commute that we all have. If there were an easier, faster, better way for us to be connected to Staten Island by improving transit, I don't think we would feel as divided as a district either. Reliable train service from 95th Street in Bay Ridge into Staten Island's North Shore, even though it's the north part of Staten Island, would be quicker than any of us getting into Manhattan. You better believe I'd think about going to Staten Island on the weekend instead of into the city. It would be nice to start with a reliable train service at 95th Street. That would be (laughs) helpful. And is that something that we feel like someone at the federal level can get funding for? Because I think a lot of times we look at that as more of a state issue. And so how much of a priority is transportation and infrastructure in the congressional race? Both Paul Sperling and DeVito talked about there is federal money that can be picked up in order to bring back to the district is up. How successful they are at doing that as a freshman congressman is a very different story. That's a political one and not a logistical one. I think it's important to remember that The solution isn't simply just throwing money at the problem. It has to be spent efficiently. If you look at the Bay Ridge Avenue station, they spent something like $22 million to renovate it and make it look cleaner and make it look prettier, but there's still no elevator there or at any station in Bay Ridge. So I'd want a congressman who's not only able to get the money, but also has the knowledge and the wisdom to spend it in a way that's actually going to make a difference. So for the MTA specifically, so for subways and for buses, out of their five-year capital plans, which would typically run about $30 billion for five years, a significant amount of that money is already coming from the federal government, typically not through the sort of pork barrel process that a congressman might be able to get that money for, but through the typical appropriations that come from department processes, the uh, United States Department of Transportation. I think one of the threats to that in the current administration with President Trump is that there seems to be a desire to put a focus on road projects that benefit rural areas and actually take it away from urban needs and rail and bus transit systems where it has traditionally been spent. So something that's going to be important for anyone who steps into the role of congressman from this district, they're going to have to try their best to protect the funds that we've traditionally been receiving for transit expenditures. Kind of coming off of that point, Staten Island is very robbed of public transportation. So what's the result? Staten Islanders drive. Bay Ridge drives too. Let's not delude ourselves. I myself am a non-driver, but that doesn't mean that I don't recognize that Bay Ridge loves its cars. Everyone wants to talk about parking and commutes. And when we talk about commutes, a couple of issues get raised for me. One is tolls. You know, the amount of money that is being spent, say, getting across the Verrazano Bridge, both for us if we're going into Staten Island and for Staten Island if they're trying to come home, and also the amount of traffic. Anyone who's ever tried to go through Staten Island to get any place knows that you can clear Staten Island very quickly or you can sit in Staten Island in traffic all day. As a non-driver, I can't really speak to how to solve those problems, but what it concerns me with is climate change. Staten Island has already been heavily, heavily impacted by climate change because of Superstorm Sandy. The fact that people are starved of mass transit that gives them cleaner alternatives to travel, to then be frustrated sitting in traffic, etc., and adding emissions. We need to address climate change. We have done possibly irreparable damage to this planet. So we can't talk about transportation without linking it in to the fact that nobody wants to talk about climate change very much because it's not sexy and it's not an easy fix. You can't propose one thing that's going to fix this. I think hopefully in New York City, most people acknowledge that climate change is real. And once you've acknowledged that, if you're in the position to figure out solutions to that as a member of the government, that you would get behind that. And so I guess I feel like Maybe part of the reason why people don't talk about it as much isn't because it's not important, but because it's so obvious that we need to do something about it. I mean, I could be wrong about that, but I feel like candidates talk about transportation in order to talk about the economy. And so they want to express sympathy for people's economic woes that they have to get to work every day versus necessarily talking about the more existential issues around transportation and climate change. Obviously, they're both really connected to transportation. Uh, We had a few of the Democratic candidates in New York 11 talk about green energy proposals. 
Uh, Max Rose was one of them. He focused on solar energy. Paul Sperling was a little more comprehensive, talked about wind farms, solar energy. Paul Sperling also brought up another thing is when you're talking about infrastructure and green energy jobs together, you're talking about an island where if a large ship is docked in the Narrows and a hurricane comes through, drags their anchor through, Staten Island loses a chunk of power um, and they're in no way self-sufficient. What was your sense for all of this? Something I think makes it difficult for people to take the issue of climate change seriously is how slow it progresses. The worst impacts we might not see until we're in our old age or after we've passed away. In that sense, we are the proverbial frogs in the pot of boiling water. It's almost as if we don't realize that we're in trouble until it's too late. And something that I see out of congressional candidates in this district and everywhere is that none of them really take the issue as seriously as it needs to be taken. There really needs to be a point where we become a nation of climate hawks and we're not really there yet. In our case, the most we can do is try to find those candidates that would be open to taking aggressive climate positions and being able to push them further on that issue than they already are now. So one good thing is that all of the candidates have said that they would support rejoining the Paris Accords. And it's interesting how we got here, right? Because we started talking about infrastructure and transportation, which led us to climate, which leads me to a host of problems that will begin to arise if they haven't already. And increase if they have, we are looking at a massive refugee crisis, 65.3 million refugees. This is a huge increase. I think it's about almost a 6 million increase on the previous year. The status from 2015. Um, The ratio works out to be one person out of every 113 people on earth is currently a refugee. And that's only as 2015. We're in 2018. And I don't have a more updated stat than that. Why are so many of these people refugees? Because People are fighting over resources because there are ethnic cleansings, because of scarcity of resources. When we look at climate change, when we look at places like Puerto Rico, where people have had to leave their homes. Now, granted, these are U.S. citizens moving to a different part of the United States. But when we look at the entire island nation of Barbuda, that was a communally owned island. Everybody who lived there shared in it. It was a really wonderful example of how a small community can function truly democratically Those people can't go back. And the president of Antigua is saying they're going to have to sell it off. They're going to have to privatize. We see that here, too. Whenever something goes wrong, we have to privatize. And if we're talking about climate change, we have to realize the implications into immigration and immigration reform and refugees and privatization that all come from these massive climate crises that are becoming harder and harder to ignore. Let's dig into that a little bit more, because in conjunction with the refugee crisis and foreign affairs, that is something we saw a distinct lack of from all of the candidates. The closest we got in terms of the refugee population, particularly here in South Brooklyn, was Emig saying, as a Christian, he felt you needed to love your neighbors. It meant all of your neighbors. That was about as close as we got from any kind of foreign policy discussion. It was something that was notably absent. I think that in this day and age, immigration should be a priority for everyone running for Congress. Dan Donovan really hasn't, in my opinion, done much to protect DACA recipients. He's been very complacent. He hasn't taken a stance despite people calling his office. And I don't really feel that there's any candidate that has really made that their priority. The president of the United States is threatening to repeal DACA and destroy the lives of hundreds of thousands, if not millions of people, drastic steps have to be taken. This isn't just some other policy issue. This is literally life and death. And I haven't really gotten that sense of urgency from any of the candidates. We watch TPS being removed from entire populations, and we have a large number of TPS recipients on Staten Island. Temporary protected status. The federal government offers basically asylum, but temporary asylum. I think Haiti is a good example. And Haiti's TPS was recently revoked, then all of those people are going to be at risk of deportation if they don't self-deport back to Haiti, which is still dangerous for many of them. Dan Donovan was asked about this at one of his coffee hours. I believe it was the one at Newdorp High School where I'm going to just plug Radio Free Bay Ridge has the audio. So if anyone wants to double check exactly what Donovan said, you can. But he was asked by a woman who was from Liberia, and she said, we're worried about TPS. We're worried about this being revoked. We don't know what to do. We have families here. Many of these people have 
people in their family who are citizens who can vote. There are people who are trying to apply for citizenship and unable to. And she said, what are you going to do? And Donovan responded by talking about how his mother was taken care of by an African woman when she was dying, her home health care attendant. Donovan just kind of talked about how he likes people from Africa and left it at that. People who don't want to take a stance on these issues because those people can't vote are being cowards. These are people who have relatives who can vote and they have allies in this community who will vote on those issues for them. We need someone who can go to Congress and actually physically protect immigrants. But I think that also their stance on immigration speaks to the candidate's character. Whoever wins the Democratic primary is going to have to become much more moderate in the general election uh, in, in order to try to win. So I'm curious to see if there's somebody who's willing to say the unpopular thing and come down hard against something that is wrong, dare I say evil, that speaks to their character. It speaks to who they are. It speaks to what they're willing to do to protect other people. And for me, that is a bigger indication of who we should have as our Congress member of anything else. A lot of it does have to do with where the candidates and their campaigns think they can build that majority coalition that will win them an election in the general. And right now, they are under the impression that they need to go after centrist-type votes that are perfectly happy with the immigration system that we have right now, the way that it's been executed under the Trump government. I do think that they're making a bit of a mistake because they're leaving out the people that really want their congressmen to stand up to a government that is currently hostile to people based on where they're born. They want a congressman to stand up against that in favor of basic, decent human rights. I keep questioning if this moderate voter actually is a real thing. I feel like people want someone who's going to look after their economic interests. And if that same person will also be looking after the economic interests of immigrants, they're okay with it. So I can't make any predictions, but I don't know who this moderate voter is. We have Dan Donovan, who seems like a nice guy to a lot of people, but his policies are not moderate. Yes, some of his votes have been what we would call the urban GOP vote. You know, he's not from middle America. He represents Staten Island, which is in New York City. But at the same time, when pushed to the point where he had to say, will you vote on a clean Dream Act? He said no. I think that's extreme. We're talking about young people. You know what I mean? So anyway, I don't think moderates necessarily vote for him. I think Republicans vote for him. I agree, Rachel. I think that you bring up a really important point about strategy, this idea of the purple voter, right? The registered Democrat who votes for Republicans, the registered Republican who'll vote for Democrats. You know, we watch right now Donovan, the so-called moderate, push rightward because he's being primaried by Grimm. This is not an accident. He's doing it on purpose because he knows he needs to appeal not to the moderate vote, but to the right wing vote, that that's his competition. He has to stave it off. You know, I read something recently that republicanism, it continually moves to the right. It continually updates itself. And the democratic response is tepid. It is completely uninspiring. And it's unsuccessful. It's unsuccessful. Now, we've seen it be somewhat successful, right? We watched Connor Lamb, Doug Jones. These are safe, moderate candidates who eked out by a hair in front of, granted, a safe Republican. I mean, these are not victories to sneeze at. But it makes me wonder, we talk about deportations now because of Trump, but no Democrats wanted to talk about them under Obama. Obama deported people in droves. This has been an American problem. What's exciting to me is we now have galvanized voters who aren't going to stand for this bullshit anymore. And now people are standing up and saying, we expect more of the Democrats. We expect more of the party that is supposed to be the opposition party to what the Republicans are allowing themselves to become. The Democratic establishment doesn't want to do that. So we have to ask the candidates to. And we have to say, as engaged progressive constituents, we will find the people who don't vote. Forget about the purples who may or may not exist. Where are all the voters that are staying home? Why aren't they coming out? Because they don't care because they don't feel heard. They don't feel represented. They don't feel that their needs are being addressed by the politicians, and they don't see a difference between the parties. So show them a difference. Now, I would pose to everybody at the roundtable, is there a candidate of the six who you think is standing out and is coming out with bold things to say as a Democrat? Just like what Mallory was saying before about how climate change and refugees and immigration are all connected, 
If we want big money and big business and corporations out of politics, if we don't want privatization of our public schools, progressivism is going to see all of these issues as connected. So far, DeVito kind of checks all of my boxes. I think that he is a progressive. When I look at his priorities, he shares the priorities that I, as a person who's dissatisfied with the sort of corporate democratic platform, uh, I think DeVito is pushing in the right direction, which is why right now I'm pretty excited about him. I'm not making an endorsement, but I think Paul Sperling, he hasn't really run much of a campaign from what I can tell, but if you do research into him, he spoke about the effects of gentrification, which is a word that's not even in most politicians' vocabulary. He supports free college and debt forgiveness. He encourages worker co-ops. He almost has a socialist platform, but unfortunately, because of the lack of campaign he's been running, we really don't get to hear about that. I've not decided yet where my primary vote will go. One of the nice things about a crowded primary is you get to see what these candidates are pushing for. And they can push each other leftward as well. Paul Sperling, I think, is a great example. You know, you're right. He hasn't mounted much of a campaign yet, but I'm really glad he's there because every time there's a debate or a forum, people have to match him. What I want to see these candidates do, all of them, is start to differentiate themselves from each other because the reason I've not yet decided, though I have some impulses about where I want to land, is I went to the Staten Island Forum, I think it was last month, and it became difficult to tell where they weren't in agreement. Most of what they were saying mirrored what the others were saying. Vibeck Bay Ridge just worked on a candidate questionnaire where we got more specific answers from five of the six candidates who agreed to participate to give people an opportunity to, like Rachel was saying, look through. Yes, on charter schools, you're off my list. I wanted to go back to a point that, Rachel, you were making downstairs in the green room. About, <laughs> uh, Quite literally. About, um, help me along here, if a candidate doesn't support... Just talking about not ruling out charter schools, to me, sets up a red flag for privatization of our public education system, which as a public school teacher, I don't feel comfortable with that. Is that what you're talking about? Yeah, that is. And if you support X, this is a candidate that I could get behind. If you're against X, I would have a difficult time trusting you. So I guess for me, I don't see any standouts right now, but I am looking for candidates that are movable. Movability is actually something of the candidates that I've met in person. They seem more open than other candidates for anything that I've met to new ideas, to research, to look into issues. On that note, every single person in this race is a new politician. They're fresh, first time they're running. A lot of them running for anything. Um, I think actually all of them running for anything against some pretty hardcore Republicans. And I wondered if anybody had some thoughts on that. Our first priority is to say, okay, any Democrat in this pool who's running is going to be better for our district than Donovan or Grimm. We know Donovan proposes ridiculous legislation. He says he's for gun sense. He says he believes that we need to study gun violence through the CDC. But he puts forward legislation because one pet tragically died on an airplane in an overhead bin. He won't vote for a Clean Dream Act. It's great that Donovan voted against the American Health Care Act. It's great he voted against the tax plan. It is simply not enough. And we certainly know Grimm is not going to move on anything. We need to come out of triage in this district. Right now with Donovan, all we can do is try to get him to vote no on the most upsetting things that are coming out of Washington. I'm not a person who identifies as a Democrat first and foremost. I'm not looking at the Democrats saying, you know what, I can't wait till we elect all the Democrats and then I can pack up my stuff and go home and do something else and not have to be engaged anymore. A drawback of having new politicians running is that we don't have an established record. You never know. A politician says, I believe X, I will do Y. Sometimes it gets done. Sometimes it doesn't get done because they didn't try to do it. Sometimes it doesn't get done because of factors outside of their control. That said, I think that the nice thing about a crowded primary is we have the opportunity to kind of vet these candidates before we're in that position. We can take any Democrat that gets into that seat and move them leftward. And that will absolutely be our job with any of these guys. And especially if we can flip the House, we have a significant advantage to take any Democrat in that seat and say, listen, you like this seat? You like your new job? You just got here? You want to be back in this job? Here's what we demand of you. It would not have been my first choice to make a game show host the president of the United States. <laughs> It would be my preference to not have a political neophyte become the governor, although if an actress has some pretty good ideas on how to run the subway system, I'm willing to listen. <laughs> there is one small bit, though, 
I don't think it's necessarily a requirement to have prior political experience for a legislative position, especially for the lower house. I think it's useful for groups that have traditionally been left out of the room to be able to bypass coming up through the lower ranks of government, maybe through a state house position or through a DA position, and be able to, as a political neophyte, jump into a U.S. house race that way. It's very difficult for women, I think, to get into the U.S. Congress. There's still an underrepresentation of minorities in the U.S. Congress. And that would be a perfect avenue to be able to jump into a U.S. House race without having any prior experience. Unfortunately, we don't really have a lot of that in the race that we're talking about right now. Yeah. So let's talk about that next. Speaking of how difficult it is for women and minorities to get into Congress, we have currently no women running for our district. They were not part of the original eight. They're not a version of the six now. And the lack of women's issues was notable in every single one of the candidates' interviews. I kind of wanted to go back to something, but it relates to this as well, which is just that when you have a bunch of people who are new to politics, whether they're men, women, not identifying with either gender, you look at what they've done prior to running. And I think in this race, it feels like there are people who have really devoted themselves to their community in ways that are very important. But going back to what Brian was saying earlier to me, it's not as big of a deal if somebody has already been involved in politics because I don't really like voting for people who think to themselves, I want to be a politician when I grow up. Um, that's not really something I look for in a candidate. That's actually the opposite of what I look for in a candidate. I want to vote for people who want to do something for their community. What I do think is troubling is that I have to assume from the fact that there are no women running that no women felt that they could actually get the support that they needed and maybe that's not true, but I have to infer that. And that's because this area, whether we're talking about South Brooklyn or Staten Island, I think there are a lot of people who are pretty traditional in their viewpoints. And it does make me feel sad because I think if there were a woman running, that might push all the candidates to be speaking more about what are quote unquote women's issues, which actually doesn't even make sense because women are people. So like people's issues affect women. But of course, there are also issues that disproportionately affect women. And even though all the candidates seem to be completely pro-choice, as far as I can tell, why this isn't a priority to discuss is a little strange. Yeah, I think when we come to women's issues, choice is the first thing that comes to mind. And it's funny, Rachel, because it reminds me of what you said earlier about climate change being real, being a foregone conclusion in some circles. And I think that often choice doesn't get mentioned because people are like, well, Obviously, I'm pro-choice, and obviously, this is not an issue. We're not still fighting this fight. I think that it's easier for people who don't have to stare down the barrel of that gun to assume that they don't even need to mention something like choice, which when asked directly, yeah, all of the candidates did say that they support a woman's right to choose without reservation in the Fight Back Bay Ridge questionnaire. But not bringing it up points to something. And I think that's kind of what I keep circling back to throughout this is we're hearing a lot of great stuff from these people, and we're also not hearing certain things mentioned because they're simply not prioritizing those issues in their rhetoric. But I think, again, it's like not sexy. Like it's not the thing that is easy to fix. And candidates like to be able to say, I will bring a wind farm. I will bring jobs. I will do this tangible thing. And when you look at things that feel larger and nebulous – it's harder for candidates to know how to latch into that besides the kind of obvious, well, of course I'm pro-choice. Well, what's the legislation you're going to do that's going to make sure that this stays? That's what I want to hear is the concrete steps about the nebulous issues. Obviously, I wish women ran for office more. I understand that there are myriad reasons why women don't. Fundraising is a huge barrier to entry for women running, especially when you're looking at a race like in our congressional district. They say you need a million dollars to even have a chance because – the established Republicans here have so much. Sometimes people ask me when I'm running for something, and I'm like, God, I cannot imagine myself in that boys club. So I get why we might not have a woman running in this district yet. I hope we have one next time around. I think that it's a huge problem for our country. You know, I teach in the North Bronx, and my students have said it's a contemporary issues class, and students have said that until Congress looks like them, they don't feel they will do anything for them. Is that case the same for women? 
I don't know, you know, there's that famous Ginsburg quote where someone said, when will there be enough women on the Supreme Court? And she said, when there's nine. And then she's like, why do people always act flabbergasted by that? We've always had nine men and nobody acts like that's strange. So why would it be strange to have nine women? I think we have to keep talking about these issues while also recognizing that we've got the field we've got. And I'm excited to watch them not just start to champion choice and bring that to the forefront, but family leave and all of the other issues that are specific women's issues, as well as the issues like economic inequality that affect men and women, though, albeit in different ways. Yeah, I feel like family leave never comes up and it's so important. I feel like there's pretty broad agreement across most progressive circles that we really need to get money out of politics because it's completely corrupted our democracy. And yet when progressives look at a range of candidates, it seems like they're really prioritizing who has the most money as opposed to whose policies they agree with or would like to see making laws. And I don't understand how you're going to prevent something or fix something by doing it more. So let's talk about the current state of a six-person race in which the differences of money is astronomical from the lowest to the highest ranging candidate. If we can shamelessly self-plug, you're listening to Radio Free Bay Ridge, in which we gave every candidate an equal platform to talk about whatever they want for as long as they wanted, with max of like, I think, two hours, hour and a half, because editing is hard. But all the same, that information gets to voters once through our platform. If they don't see that platform, they see platforms that money buys. When you do have a candidate who has a lot of money from corporations or people outside the district, it doesn't give their constituents, the people who their policies are directly going to affect, it doesn't give them as much of an opportunity to make the choice. Realistically, most people are going to vote for someone in this election because one of their canvassers comes to their house and they like what they say. And if you have double the amount of canvassers than your opponent, then you're going to win. But Max Rose is the one that has the most amount of money. And not to single anyone out, Goldman Sachs has donated to him. Blue Dog Pack, which has taken money from the NRA, has donated to him. And when you have people that are also donating to Republicans, people who have no interest in this district, who have never been to NY11 donating to candidates, they don't have the constituents' interest in mind. They want to push their own agenda. And just because someone has the potential to win doesn't necessarily mean that they should. Four years ago, I think it was, when Michael Grimm was under indictment, the DCCC, which is the Democratic Party's fundraising arm for congressional races, they saw the blood in the water and they really thought that they had Grimm. They're going to beat this guy. This is going to be the year that they did it. And they just threw obscene amounts of money at that race to take down Michael Grimm. But they were still handicapped by the fact that the candidate that they had was Dominic Recchia, who is not by any means the strongest candidate that you can field in any sort of race. His primary political strength was being able to operate the levers of the Democratic Party machine in southern Brooklyn, and that's how he was able to be an effective council member for a number of years. But it didn't really play very well in a congressional race because he just wasn't all that informed on the issues that happen at the federal level. It's one of the indications that just having a lot of money to throw at a race isn't going to be enough to win. And I do think that there has to be some sort of emphasis on what a person's issues are. What is their strength at running their own organization in absence of having a lot of money? Those are serious considerations that need to be looked at. And I don't really want to see the Democratic Party repeat the mistake of four years ago of spending a lot of money on a candidate who wasn't qualified. If someone is really excited about a candidate for reasons other than money, and that candidate has a lot of money, let's not pretend that that's not a nice bonus, right? You're going to need to spend money to win this race. I don't know how much. I'm not the one running, but it can't be the only factor. This is our chance as progressives to look beyond a single election. Yes, we all want Donovan gone. I'm not being delusional about the fact that that is our primary aim. But if we settle for a candidate that we're not excited about just because of money, and look, there are plenty of people who are thrilled that Max Rose is running. I know people who loved him before they knew about the money. People might love him and not know about the money. There are a lot of people who like him simply on who he is as a candidate. And that's great. 
go work for him, petition, do that for whatever candidate you care about. Because the thing about a primary is it's our chances progressive in this neighborhood to not settle anymore for status quo and say, I love this person. I want them to represent me. They speak to me. They encourage me. And if they lose the primary, I'll get behind somebody else. And I'll maybe have to work a little harder once they're in office to push them to represent me. But I'll do that. Five candidates are going to lose this race. My vote will have been important and symbolic and said, hey, next time you run in this district, this is what you want to be saying. And not only what you want to be saying, but what you also want to follow through on if you get into office. And I will abuse my moderator's privilege to say also that it is an issue that is very, very inside baseball. Our audience and our room is such that we could probably quote the amount of money that all of the candidates have right now. 98% of the voters out there cannot. I would be very surprised if the people registered as Democrats in New York 11, if over 5% knew who had the most money in this race right now. There are plenty of people who worked for Obama back in 2007 when he had less money. They got out, they were excited, and they gave money, of course, and then money then helps that campaign. But boots on the ground and involvement went a lot further than the inside baseball of what amount of money they had in their war chest. I'd also like to say that, yeah, big money talks, but small money talks too. For those who care about candidates that don't have the money, cough up, give them what you can, even if it's five bucks, you know, do something. If you're interested, you can throw a fundraiser. And if you're not sure who you want, Swing Left is collecting money for whoever the eventual winner is. And this can potentially start to even the playing field. If we all gave donations through Swing Left, that money is held It is going to whoever wins the primary for the general. It's not a ton of money, but it could be. So tell your out-of-state friends. You want to flip a red district? You're safely blue? Tell your in-state friends. You know, you don't have time to read up on six candidates? I got you. Don't just throw your money to somebody who you heard about on the internet. Throw your money to whoever wins the primary. Let us have our voice and then kick your money toward them. I'd kind of like to end there if everyone's okay with it. I want to thank every single person who came over and talked to us. Your insights were unique and inspiring. And I think ending it on a note of find your person and get involved is the way that we go. I would say it's the official position of Radio Free Bay Ridge to find your person and get involved. I want to, again, just thank everyone for being here. All right, Dan. So that was... That was something. That was great. That covers a lot of the stuff that really was lacking from the candidates. And hey, if any of our candidates are listening, and I know quite a few of you are, these are some of the issues that you should be talking about. These are your constituents, and these are the people that you need to activate for this primary. As they said, don't just go for South Shore. Don't just go for the moderates that may or may not exist. We're here. We're activated. How much do we get paid for this podcast, Eric? Oh, wow, Dan. I'd say it's in the negatives. It's Um, in the negatives. I've put money into this podcast. I don't get back. Uh, We don't get back any money, actually. We don't ask for anything. We don't do any advertising. These are the people that really make communities work. Not just us, everybody, the people that were on this podcast. If you want to join in with any of the groups that they are involved in, South Brooklyn Progressive Resistance, Fight Back Bay Ridge, Bay Ridge for Social Justice, South Brooklyn DSA, and the South Brooklyn Transportation Alternatives Chapter, or any of the others that are active in this neighborhood, Peace Action, all of them, go to our website. We actually have a page where you can get in touch with every single one of them, figure out who they are, and if they're your kind of people, start adding your voice into theirs. If you're moderate or conservative, Find an issue-based group that really focuses on an issue you care about. There are a lot of nonpartisan issues that really need to be advocated for, not just against our local Republican politicians, but against our Democratic politicians as well. We need to hold them all accountable. Yeah, no, I just a note for that. Every single person in the studio just now is a 100% they're going to vote. None of them are staying home and their issues should be considered. They represent very different swaths of the liberal and progressive area of Bay Ridge. Yes, there are a couple of more things just before we close out for the day. Events that are coming up in the next couple of days that are actually both of them at Stand 4 Gallery. If you're not aware of Stand 4, it is a very intimate but lovely independently owned gallery space in Bay Ridge. They actually have a really cool exhibit up right now, right off of Earth Day, 
of artists that have come back from an immersion program in the Amazon Basin in Brazil that explores the connection between art and science and nature in general. Go over there, check it out. It's up till May 31st, so you have a little while to go. But also at Stanford Gallery is a honoring of Gilbert Sorrentino. That's going to be on April 27th. That's this Friday from 7 to 9 p.m. at Stanford. If you don't know Gilbert Sorrentino, he was a major fiction and poetry writer, grew up right here in Bay Ridge, lived here in Bay Ridge, and the esteemed Henry Stewart will be organizing that. Henry Stewart, the editor-in-chief of Hay Ridge, contributor to the local Bay Ridge Historical Society, community board member, he will be organizing this, and there'll also be a discussion of arts and literature at the gallery in addition to this little retrospective and honor. Head out, explore more parts of your neighborhood. Get involved with more people, connect with more people. That's what this is all about. And it's been a long run, but everybody, I'd just like to say welcome to the primaries. We're finally here. This is it. It's actually starting up. We will probably be taking a bit of a step back from NY11. It is (laughs) your baby now, Bay Ridge. (laughs) Start, Start running, get involved with those people, listen through to those episodes, learn about those candidates if you haven't already, because... Wow, this is going to be a great NY11 election cycle. And we're not coming back until we have a candidate. I mean, hey, Krim is up by 10 points according to a Democratic poll. It sure is. Bayridge, if you uh, need to know where your most reliable source for information of any Democratic candidate is coming from. Right here at Radio Free Bay Ridge. And let's give a shout out to Fight Back Bay Ridge for setting up a gigantic 50-page candidate questionnaire of everyone except for, again, weirdly enough, the one candidate not speaking out. Omar Vaid, but every other candidate is in that questionnaire. You can learn all about the things that weren't covered in today's episode. Foreign policy got a really big explanation from all of the candidates directly from their own mouths. Yeah, so if you want to fill in the gaps from our coverage, that would be the place to do it. Yeah, we'll link that in the show notes as well. And hey, until next time, stay free, Bay Ridge. <laughs>